I'm Andy. I do have the privilege of being part of the staff team uh, here at Vine Life. And just, ah, oh, just how cool is it being together and being able to worship like that? And just kind of, I love being able to shout really hard and like know that it's not disturbing the neighbors. I hope it's not anyway, but um, yeah, thanks guys for that. Um, we're going to uh, keep on going with our, um, with our series, uh, looking at Jesus being the image of God. Um, I am so glad, you know, I'm so glad that Sam, um, in all of his very attractiveness and slight Greekness, um, has got us to lean in as a church and to focus in on the person of Jesus. Because there's a lot of other things we could have been talking about. It could have been very easy for us in the season that we're in, um, coming back in after COVID and all that kind of stuff to be like, what is church? You know, what, what, should, what should it be like? What should it look like? What should we do? How should we do it? What does it look like for us to be the gathered church again together? And we could have been asking all of these kind of philosophical questions about church and actually missed the opportunity to be the church. I don't just want to talk about this. I want us to be the church, to be the family of God. And I think really it shuffles down to a very small thing, which is that we get to learn what it means to love Jesus, to love one another, and to love the last, the least, and the lost. That is what we're here to do. That is what we are here to do. And uh, I love that we're doing this series because what we behold, we become. And there's nothing more. This this isn't about like, let's just nuzzle with Jesus, get a nice warm blanket and have a cuddle with him, maybe rub his beard a little bit. It's not about that. This is one of the most strategic things that we could possibly do to look at him because it is the person of Jesus Christ that defines our mission. And it is our mission that should then define the shape of our church. That should be the flow. That should be the flow. And so that is what we're going after. And that is why this is such an important series for us. Because this is what it's all about. This is what we're going after, isn't it, mate? Cool, cool, cool. Um, so I'm going to start where we've started all of these talks, which is in, in that beautiful, phenomenal passage in Colossians. So if, you want, if you've got a Bible or a phone, or if you just want to, I think it's going to come up on the screen, we're going to look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to 20. And it says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross." Isn't that incredible? Um, I just want to look at this briefly at the start, just to think about this, because this is a beautiful, beautiful poem. And it might not be a poem in the way that we expect a poem to be with like rhyming words, but it has these beautiful rhyming concepts. So I'm going to get us to do something physical to help kind of remind us of this or help us to remember this. Um, Don't worry, it's not going to include anything like inappropriate, long physical contact. In fact, there's no physical contact. No licking or holding hands or anything like that. Um, just put your hands up like this. Like a butterfly. Um, 
And what we've got, we've got these on four fingers on each side, and then two, and you've dropped them right then, two thumbs crossing over. And what this is, this is this piece of scripture. Okay? So we've got four beautiful um, ideas about Jesus being, being raised up here, and then a crossover, two verses crossing over, and then four reflections of those initial ideas. I'm going to explain what that means. Okay? So that, this is the shape of today. Is that cool? Everyone happy? Wave your butterflies. Hello. Good. Um, so, <laughs> so thanks for that. That was a bit weird, wasn't it? Um, I, I know. Yeah, so Paul starts off, and he's basically telling us this incredible reality about who Jesus is, that he is before all things, and that he's in and through all things were made. It's just, this is a massive statement, because he's talking about things that probably even more so for the people hearing this in the, in the first instance was really important, like the sun coming up, the rain's coming, uh, stuff doing what it's supposed to do, winds blowing, like, like totally taking pollen and pollinating stuff and making things happen, which means that at the end of the day, you get food on the table. And these are big concepts. These are big ideas. This ball of gas in the sky called the sun, the moon that comes out at night, the stars in the sky, not just random points of light in the blanket of the evening sky. They would actually like, you can find your way home in the desert with these stars. You know, this is incredibly big, massive ideas. And the idea that Jesus was the one who was before all of this and who, through, through whom all of this was made is just this incredible concept. And he lands this idea by saying in verse 17 that he's before all things and in him all things hold together. That little word hold together, the Greek for that is this word Soon is stemi, and it means to command, to establish, to stand near, to consist, to compact together, to cohere, to be constituted with. Do you remember those little random little wooden toys you'd get maybe in your Christmas stocking? You know, the ones that are like about this big and they're joined together with a piece of elastic and there's a button, button on the bottom. And it's like this, and then you press the button and it goes, oh, for goodness sake. And then you let go and it goes, woo, and back again, you know? And it's like it's the tension within that's giving it form. And here's the tension that he's holding all things together. So not only did he instigate and perform the act of creation, he is the sustaining power of creation, Jesus. Isn't that incredible? I mean, that's kind of enough, isn't it? <laughs> and these, these little four fingers we're going to look at. So the first thing is this idea that he says he's the image of God. So when we look at Jesus, we see the Father, right? We see his character in his nature. But he's also the head of the church, so theoretically, when you see the church, you see Jesus, his character, and his nature in and through us. He talks about him being the firstborn of creation and the firstborn of the dead, of the saved. He says that in him, all things were created. In him, all things were created. And then in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This whole, the whole content is found and caught up within him. And it says that, all things were created through him, and through him, all things are reconciled to him through his blood on the cross. So you've got these four beautiful, poetic, rhyming concepts of Jesus. Um, and to, to mark here what he's doing, he's marking that he is before and through and all, in all of this big stuff. But what a beautiful mystery that he's also in and through and for us. That he sustains us. This is, the, this is the point. This is the turning point. This rhyme, beautiful rhyming um, 
conjured this poem. Now he's using literary devices like Anaforma, where he's, before, where he's, he's, he's using the, the same idea that he is, he is, and he's marking out each section to underline again, he is. And he's marking, he is over all of this stuff, but he's also over us. This idea of firstborn is really important because it's kind of one of the, one of the loudest ideas in this, little, in this little poem. It's based on the Greek word prototokos. Proto, like first, tokos, born. Um, um, like prototype, first thing. Um, and what's important about this is it's not the same as saying that he was first created, because that'd be like Adam and Eve. It's not saying that, because if he was saying that, it would have used the, the phrase proto-tokizo, which is different. It's marking that he's proto-tokos. And it's another way of pulling out this idea of his preeminence. And if you don't know what preeminence means, it's just like, you know, Tina Turner is just simply the best. He's the best. He's the best. Um, she knew that. Man, she knows about this stuff. Good old Tina. Um, so, yeah, he's the best. He is above all things. There is no one above him. That he is before all things. That he is after all things. And there is no one after him. That he is sovereign. That he is full. That there is nothing missing, nothing broken in him. That he is literally the best. That's good news, right? I'm excited about it right here. Um, So what's the point of all that? The point is that Paul is using this beautiful, intricate little poem to mark that the person of Jesus Christ is before all things, that he instigated and performed the act of creation and is the sustaining power of creation, but not just that that he instigated and performed the act of our recreation and he is the sustaining power that holds us together. That's cool, right? So what I wanted to do is just really quickly look at five ways that Christ sustains us. Um, I'm going to go as quickly as I can because you know me, I'm not you know, blessed with being brief often, but I'm, I'm going to give it a good shot if that's okay. Um, There are five seasons of the soul that I want us to look at. And the first is this. It's this idea that Jesus sustains us in our breaking. And the way that I want to do it is in a little bit of a, it's not, it's not, it might be theology, but it's definitely not doctrine. It's probably more like a poetic reflection. This is really like a bit of a summary of the last few months of my weird little quiet times. I've been reading this book called Wilding, uh, which is just about trees and stuff. And um, it's nice. Um, but it, the definition of whining is restoration through letting go. And I really believe that's what's on the church right now. There's a restoration that's happening through letting go, through actually allowing voices to be heard, for allowing us to be a group of people that stand together, not for it all to be about, well, there's a few people allowed it. I know it's a weird thing because I'm talking from a thing, but it's like that hopefully what you're experiencing and this is just a practical thing right now, but I hope what you're experiencing is this broader, wider sense of life as more voices get heard and more voices speak into who we are and what we're doing. So that's the key. That's the key. Um, I'm going to look at, weirdly, I'm going to look at Isaiah and I'm going to use the, the oak tree, and it sounds a bit weird, a bit hippie, but we can use the oak tree analogies in Isaiah as a little bit of a framework for, for going through this. Is that okay? It sounds a bit floopy, but you'll get it. You'll get it, you'll get it, you'll get it. So Isaiah speaks into a really interesting time in history because he's speaking into a time where you've got the rise of the Assyrian Empire 
who were on a campaign basically to take everything over. And actually within his lifetime, that includes that they took over and, and conquered and sent into exile, never to be returned, the whole northern kingdom of Israel. Yeah? The whole northern kingdom of Israel. So that's gone. So there's these real lows and hard stuff that's going on. But there's also some highs. In Isaiah, you, you see um, the, the, the revival that came through King Hezekiah. You can read about it in 2 Kings chapter 18. And there's um, this beautiful stuff that happened. Smashed down the high places. And in fact, to Sennacherib, the, what was then the king of Assyria, tried to come through and, 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 and take the, the southern kingdom of Judah. They couldn't. And there's this incredible moment of a battle that's won. Um, but then again into this difficult season of the rise of Babylon. And then this Babylon, eventually after Isaiah, this the, um, the, the nation of, of Judah being um, taken into Babylonian exile. So there's a lot of different stuff going on, but this is the kind of stuff he's speaking into. But fundamentally what I want to mark is that he's speaking to a people that are experiencing um, what it's like to just be doing some really bad stuff. And often what's connected to doing really bad stuff is that you experience a lot of loss and a lot of pain. It's not exclusively to that, but you do experience a lot of loss and a lot of pain. So those are the two things that are happening. And so what I want to mark is that he is sustaining us in our breaking. In, um, in Isaiah 1, 29, it's, it says this. It says, For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tinder, and the work a spark. And both of them shall burn together, and none, one, and none to quench them. And this is very simply, like, there were these sacred trees, and they abused these things by, like, these weird sexy, like, religious rituals and things like that. And they were just doing stuff that meant that they weren't leaning into Yahweh. They weren't looking at God. They were looking at other stuff. And it gives this, like, brief description of the tree that withers which is a real contrast to like the tree in you know the tree in Jeremiah 17 where it talks about this tree that is like planted by the stream sends out its roots to the water that it won't fear the the blazing sun and its its leaves are always green it won't fear the season of drought because its fruit will never fail there's this sense of flourishing that's happening and it's like this is not that (laughs) Um, and what I want to mark out really quickly in this is just this idea that um, we will often find ourselves in the situation of experiencing the results of our sin and the results of our loss. There's some really helpful stuff going on in like um, psychology, and they're doing loads of like qualitative research about what, what guilt and shame mean. And I, I know you've heard this before, but I think it's really helpful that the idea that guilt is something that happens when we go, ah, oh, dang it, that was a really bad idea. And so we, we, we learn off the back of it. And we change off the back of it. But shame is something that speaks to our person and our identity. It says, you are a bad person. The problem with that is that we hate the idea, like hate, hate, hate the idea of being a bad person. And so we'll do anything that we can to avoid being seen. And so we project a version of ourselves that we think is acceptable to others while we hide this horrible little dirty version of ourselves that we think if anybody ever found out, then we would be hated and despised forever and forever and ever and ever. Um, and, and that's the dynamics going on. And there's all the mechanisms that go into maintaining that duality. Um, and what, I mean, some of the stuff, I was, I'm a bit of a geek. I was listening to this course on psychology um, a few weeks ago. And, and what they were saying was that it's fascinating that they see the point of guilt because if you find yourself in a guilty place, so you learn and you, you change your action and so you get a different result. Where people who, who are experiencing shame, it's like the scientific community cannot work out what the point of shame is. Because nothing happens. There's nothing creative that happens. It's literally just a prison. 
And what I wanted to mark out from that is this idea that if we dissociate from our shame and from our sin, if we dissociate from our sin, we actually cut ourselves off from the opportunity for redemption. If we dissociate from our sin, we cut ourselves off from the opportunity for redemption. It says if you, you, know, if you say that you don't sin, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. And the reason is that. Um, and then the other part of it is that is also about what it looks like for us to dissociate from our pain. I had a chat with, with a really good friend recently, and, and she really challenged me because she said, Andy, because I'm, I'm the kind of guy, I'm the kind of guy that's like, I, I, I know that every, for every individual, they're the center of their universe. And so I don't have an expectation that anybody's thinking about me. I don't expect very much off anybody, really, because that's kind of, kind of it. You know, and I was like, there you go. Um, and, um, you know, regularly I would be driving in the car and looking out the window and being like, yeah, that person isn't an extra in my story. <laughs> They've got their own story, you know? And, and that's kind of my, like, my view on life a little bit. But part of how that works out is when NAF stuff happens, I kind of chalk it down to like, yeah, that kind of happened, but crack on then, you know? And I'm talking about stuff like, you know, when I was 25 and my first marriage breaking down. And it was like, come on, Andy, crack on, you know? Or like just before I came here, I left Ivy Church and it was a really painful process because you're losing like friends, people that you've shared life with, invested in. You're losing the thing that you've been part of building and there's a grief process that goes on. But I was like really keen just to kind of crack on with that as quickly as possible. Just put it down, crack on, Andy. You know, no one really cares. <laughs> Apart from you, just get on with it. And, and my mate said to me, said, yeah, how, if you, if, you, if you don't embrace your own pain, how are you ever going to understand anybody else's? How are you ever, ever going to have empathy for anybody else's pain? And it, re it really shook me. And it's something, I'm, I'm still like working out the ramifications of it, but it's like, I want to I be able to like, forgive quickly, like in an instant. I'm not the kind of guy that sits there thinking, well, I just need a little bit of time to be annoyed with you. Um, but somehow I need to be able to get hold of and embrace and understand my own pain. I think we all need to do that because if we dissociate from our own pain, we cut ourselves off from the opportunity of genuine restoration. Yeah? Um, so, um, let's just read. Um, this is taking far too long. Any big surprises? Any big surprises? I was, <laughs> um, I'm just going gonna to jump out. Uh, Isaiah, um, I've messed up my things. There we go. Um, Isaiah uh, 6 verse 13 says, And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned up again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is a stump. The holy seed is a stump. Well, I want us to do one last little weird physical thing. Stick your elbow out like that. And stick your hand on the end. Do that. And just go to the person next door and say, hello. And if you remember nothing else from this talk, remember this, that the stump is a seed. Yeah? The stump is a seed. This is the promise, that when we feel like we've been cut down, yeah, in our breaking, when we are like ravaged by our own sin and the repercussions of our sin, when we are broken by the hurt 
um, of our, in our lives, people betraying us or, or, or just like stuff going wrong or feel like that sense of lack. Um, when we're experiencing that pain, it's remembering that even though we feel cut down, the stump is a seed. That's his promise to us. That's his promise to us. Um, just have a little pause and have a little think. Oh, gosh. Have a little pause and have a little think. What, would, what, what is that meaning for you? What are the things in your life? What is God saying to you? What are the things in your life that you're like, ah, that, I, I experienced this as a stump, as something that's cut down, that's finished, that is dead, that is over. But actually, I want to know, Jesus, that you are speaking life. You're speaking a better word. You're singing a sweeter song to say that that which I thought discredited me or that which I thought I had lost has the opportunity to be a seed. So, um, the second thing, and I'm going to go super fast now, is that okay? Sorry, the second thing is that Jesus sustains us in our forming. Um, do you know the best way to grow an oak tree? Anyone know? We have all these charities, don't we, that, that will like, have these nurseries and they grow loads of little saplings and then they will kind of take them and move them to a place and plant them in the ground and stick one of those plastic things around them so that they can grow up and not be nibbled on by things um, uh, and then become trees. Woo! Um, the issue with that is that only about 50% of the trees make it. Because often the, 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 the taproot will be snapped in transit or it will dry out too much and then it just, just doesn't make it. The best way to grow an oak tree is to let a little jaybird find an acorn, budge off, find a bramble or a briar as a marker, and they will drop the acorn in there. And then it, in the context of the brambles and the briars, the acorn drops its taproot down, and it has the chance to grow and to flourish within the context of the bramble and be strong enough so that if something does come along and nibble it, um, it doesn't die. And 97% of trees that are planted like that will grow and will thrive, and will survive. Not less than 50. Isn't that cool? Jesus knew what he was doing. Come on, mate. Um, and so what I want to say about this simply is this, is that the problem is with that initial, what it is to, to, um, to be in the forming season of our soul, is that we hate it. Because it's a hidden place. And one of the problems is, is that when we grasp to remove the thing that's hiding us, we experience the pain because it's spiky. And the problem is other people experience that pain as well. And so I just want to say, beware the comparison in that season. Beware the desire for influence or the desire for leadership or the desire for a position or a platform if you're not yet walking in a way that others should follow. The only thing the Bible really tells us to pursue eagerly are the greater gifts of the Spirit. And they're exclusively about loving others, serving others, edifying others. And I think the antidote in that season is about gratitude. Because do you know what? Probably the place where your feet are is somebody else's ceiling. So allow the process. Allow it to take time. Allow it to take time. And know that the thing about this season is that we'll always be unto something. Jesus is establishing something in you through this season. I've missed a load of stuff out, but just say the season of the forming, in this season of our forming, he sustains us through his promises. Let's just read Isaiah 60, uh, 21, 22. The people shall 
all be righteous. They shall all possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one shall become a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. How cool is that? Next one. Just pause. Sorry, pause. If that's you, what's Jesus saying? I want you to take a little marker of what he's saying. Uh, if that's you, if you know that he's, that he's challenging you in that, uh, take a note of it. Next one. He sustains us in our flourishing. Do you know that there is, in the world of trees, there is a beautiful, completely unseen universe. And it's, to, a lot of it is to do with this little fungus called mycorrhizae. Trust me. Mycorrhizae. It's like a hair-like filament, a fungus, that will attach itself to the root of the tree and will grow out thousands of times longer than the, the initial root. In fact, these mycorrhizae form a network, and some think that these mycorrhizae networks can span entire continents. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that incredible? Now, it's not just that. This is like flipping tree science fiction, okay? The, 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 the thing about these things is they, they can do lots of different things. Fundamentally, they bring water and nutrients to the tree in a way that they couldn't get on their own. And that's cool in of itself. But what they also do, they're like an early warning system. So if a tree's being attacked by, I don't know, a pathogen or, or, or a predator or something or other, the other trees kind of know and they go, ooh. And they, they, they cause this, like, chemicals to be released through the fibers of the bark that actually attract predators of the thing that is attacking the tree. So they bring in the big guns. How cool is that? I mean, this is nuts, isn't it? The other thing that it's like, is like, it's like an intensive care thing. So if there's a tree in part of the network that is like vulnerable, they will go, oh, dude's, dude's struggling. And so they, they push nutrients and boost nutrients to the tree that is struggling. I mean, what the heck is flipping trees, isn't it? But... I'm, I was reading this fun, like, I don't even believe it. It's, it's stupid. You made it up, dude. But um, it, honestly, this is what is happening under the ground. Um, so what, <laughs> it's, it's absolutely true. So um, one of the, so the, the point of this is that if you look at a tree that has been able to grow in the open field, undisturbed, compared to a tree that you often see in between, like a boundary line between a field, two fields, one that's been like growing maize or something, one that's been growing rapeseed, whatever it might be. The difference is the tree that's been allowed to grow in the open space un, un, with the mycorrhizae network undisturbed will look like a, like a rich, like, the, like a broccoli, like a rich, thick crown, dome on the top of the tree. If you look at the other tree that's been um, next to the fields that have been plowed and had all the insecticide and all the different stuff poured into it will be like this kind of skeletal frame, like, like meh, you know? And the difference is the one that's in the field has been cut off from its allies. It's been isolated and cast aside alone. Whereas the tree that is flourishing is connected. It's connected. And so flourishing looks like connectivity. It looks like interdependence, mutual submission. It looks like being postured towards others, family and community. You know, there was a song for the church. There was a new song for the church in this country. It's not a solo. It is a chorus. Many voices, many voices. Let's just take a moment to listen to what happens to the people of God as Christ is able to fill his mandate. This is what he quoted about himself in Luke 4, but we're going to read it from Isaiah 61. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor and has sent me to the blind to bind up the brokenhearted and proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison 
to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them, listen to this, because this is about a community, what's happening in a community, um, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, and they may be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord that he may be glorified, that they shall build up the ancient ruins, and they shall raise up the former devastations, and they shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. There's this early warning system built into the church. There's this intensive care built into the church, but it only works if the network is intact. only works if we get to be family together. only works if we get to honor one another and give space to one another's voices. When we isolate one another, no surprise, we stop flourishing and we become unhealthy. We become skeletal and a bit meh. People are weird. People are weird when they when they when, like when they when people get isolated. They're just a bit weird. It's because I know I know it sounds really tight to say that, but it's, they've just not had people around them to love them, and so that the onus is on us in that. I'm not saying that's on them. The onus is on us to be family and to be connected. Um. So, two more things. How am I doing for time? I've got three minutes. Shaba. Okay. Jesus is sustaining us. Oh, sorry, for that final thing, just so you, for your notes if you're writing. Do make notes and stuff. That's, how I, that's the only way I learn, because otherwise I forget. Um, in the seasons of flourishing, Jesus is sustaining us through our connectedness. So again, what is Jesus saying? What is he speaking to you about? Fourth thing, Jesus sustains us in our maturing. When ancient oaks are really fascinating, there's about 118 of them in the UK, which is more than the rest of Europe altogether. So an ancient oak is something that's one that's Marked as, um, they kind of measure them. So around the girth, if they're more than nine meters, it means that they're probably like pushing a thousand years old. How cool is that? Now, what happens when they get super old is that the lower boughs come all the way down to the floor. Yeah, they come all the way down to the floor. Um, and the tough thing about that is we think about a tree. We think trees should be like kids draw them. Stick with a lollipop on top, yeah? And the problem is when, when these old ancient oaks start to kind of, they, they, this kind of self-buttressing effect as the, as, the, as the branches come down, we lob them off because now you should be a stick with a pumpkin on top. It's actually the thing that destroys them. Now, what looks to us like weakness is actually maturity. And my goodness, guys, we have got to get so much better in our old age of not thinking that maturity looks like independence. is a lie. It's a big, fat lie. Maturity is not independence. Maturity is allowing others to come in and add strength. How, how often does the church fail? Because we think leadership has to look a certain way. And it's got to be this kind of hierarchical thing with somebody sitting at the top, of the top of the tower. But real leadership and real maturity looks like saying, who can I bring in? Whose voice can I bring in? Who can I allow to kind of touch the ground with me and to add their strength to what's happening? Who can I allow to come down to the point where actually the central stem is actually obscured from view because of this crowd of witnesses that stand together in strength and adding strength to one another? The other thing that happens is when a tree gets super duper old is that it hollows out all the fungi, all the different things, loads of death and decay and then stuff that eats it. And the whole thing hollows out. And what happens is it becomes flexible. And again, we look at it and think, oh, it's a goner. It's not. It's actually strength. Because a a, a thousand-year-old tree standing next to a 200-year-old oak in the middle of a storm, the one that is most likely to be uprooted is the 200-year-old oak because it's brittle. 
He's trying really hard to be like, I'm in a tree, yeah? But the hollowed out tree is, is flexible and can withstand incredible storms. Jesus models this because, as in Philippians, the, the kenosis, the, he, he made himself nothing. He emptied himself out. And so we've got to catch this idea that maturity, maturity looks like surrender. Because if we think we can do it ourselves, we will hold on and try and keep control. But actually, we've got to allow others to stand with us, and we've got to allow this emptying out of ourselves, so that we can actually be flipping useful in the kingdom. San said, we're not faffing around. We don't want to faff around. We want to be the kind of people who are mature. But that doesn't look like... It doesn't look like... like um, it doesn't look like a singularity. It doesn't look like celebrity. It doesn't look like something that's shiny. It looks like family. It looks like family. Final thing, and this is a really short one. Jesus, oh, sorry. I'm really bad at this. Jesus sustains us in our maturing through our surrender. Through our surrender. It opens the way for him. He's like, yeah, I'm with you. Come on, let me add strength to you. Do that with one another. So the final thing, Jesus sustains us in our dying. So we've got this happy ending. Um, we've come full circle. Because uh, genuinely, it's going to happen to all of us, isn't it? Um, it's the one surety in life is that it will end. But when does he stop sustaining us? When does he stop sustaining us? When does his compassion run out? When does his loving kindness dwindle away? Never. That's the point. Death is not the marker that is given up on you. It's certainly not the punishment. Although death feels like the end and it feels like we've been cut down, guess what? What was it? The stump is a seed. Death is just the beginning of the new world era. The stump is a seed, even death itself. And he sustains us through the hope that he gives us. I've completely lost the end of the talk. No idea. It's gone. End of the talk's gone. So, let's see if I can wing it. The, so the, where, what we see in this is that Jesus is fully sustaining us. So not only did he instigate and perform the act of creation, but he's the sustaining power of creation. Not only did he instigate and perform the act of our recreation, he is the one who sustains us. That he's before all things. He's before all things and he holds all things together and we are his. What would it be like if, as the sun rises tomorrow, again, <laughs> again, there it is, again, the sun rises tomorrow and we're like, oh, do you know what? That's part of your concern, but so am I. You know, what if we, as we look around at the moment and all the autumn leaves are falling from the crowns of the trees, but we know that spring is coming because he is faithful. And maybe that's the word for us, that the stump is a seed. But he does all of this because he loves us. That's his whole heart, his whole posture is as a father. So Lucy's going to come and um, 
work out how to fix this up. Oh, there it is on the floor. Got it. There we go. Thanks, babe. Well done, babes. Uh, I don't know about you, but there's a lot in there, isn't there? And it was brilliant. And I think it's that thing of like, this is a bit of a meal for us to chew on for the rest of the week. And like, maybe go back and watch and go, what was that bit? So why don't we just stand before we finish? I'm going to let you go and get your kids in literally one minute's time. But why don't you just take a moment and we're just going to say, Jesus, where am I in this, you know, in this structure? You know, Jesus sustained us in our breaking, in our forming, in our flourishing, in our maturing, in our dying. Where are we? And where do we need to recognize what he's doing and ask for him to continue to sustain us? Let's just take a moment.